if you work with traumatized people, you deal with these complex issues of memory. That is our field. We do that all the time. It's our bread and butter. It is what you deal with of people who suddenly retrieve a little bit and they say, no, I must be crazy to remember this because nobody wants to remember this. Nobody wants to think that somebody who they loved mm -hmm. did this to them. So people say, no, I'm crazy. This didn't happen to me. And more and more stuff comes to mind. I said, I remember that. I said, no, I'm crazy. What's wrong with me? Let me cut myself in order to forget. Right. You know, right. that's what happens all the time. Right. And so when you're a clinician who does this work, that's the work you do. And so you help people to feel safe enough to allow themselves to know what they know. These claims about repression um, are claims that uh, you know, horrible brutalization is banished into the unconscious by some process that's beyond ordinary forgetting and remembering. And then, you know, years later, you, according to the theory, go through some kind of therapy that uh, lifts this veil of repression and makes you aware of the experiences. And it, it's that kind of claim that I just haven't seen any real credible scientific support for. Uh -huh. Hello everyone, welcome to part two of this series, Looking at Memory. In the first episode, I focused on false memories, asking whether people really can fabricate whole sections of their biographies, or whether this is simply a nonsense theory concocted by abusers and their lawyers. In spite of my utter incredulity that such a thing is possible, I had to conclude that it does indeed appear to be the case. What psychologists do in their laboratories, implanting false childhood memories in test subjects, does correspond to what some people report happened to them in therapeutic sessions. I'm open to further revision of this position. I'd certainly like to hear more accounts of people who have come to believe their memories were false and attempt to get a better sense of how pervasive a problem it is. For now, though, I'm going to move on and look at the other side of the coin the concept of recovered memories. The voices you heard in the opening clips were famed trauma therapist Bessel van der Kolk alongside famed memory expert Elizabeth Loftus. You heard them taking diametrically opposed positions on whether it is possible to recover repressed memories of trauma or not. Van der Kolk asserts it is a real phenomenon, the bread and butter of a trauma therapist's work, whilst Loftus claims that after decades of study, She's seen no evidence for such a mental capacity. How is this discrepancy possible? Well, one thing which I think explains a good chunk of it is that the term recovered memory can refer to two entirely different things. In the previous episode, I laid out some standards for judging whether both false and recovered memories were real phenomena. Regarding recovered memories, I suggested that if they are real, then we would expect to see multiple accounts of verification either through physical evidence or corroboration by other people. I said that obviously abuse has few witnesses, but given its extent, even if it was only one in a hundred cases, we would expect a parent to confess or siblings to corroborate accounts from memories that had always existed for them. It turns out this is indeed the case, that people recall incidents of abuse years later, either spontaneously or in therapy, has been documented in a multitude of studies where the abuse was corroborated by evidence. I'll just read a couple of examples. A 1996 study published in the Journal of Psychiatry and Law reported that 17 patients who had recovered memories of abuse in therapy participated in a search for evidence confirming or refuting these memories. 
Memories of abuse were found to be equally accurate whether recovered or continuously remembered. Or again in 1996, the American Journal of Psychotherapy reported that Proponents of false memory syndrome have taken the position that memories that surface during the course of psychotherapy are not the product of real traumas, but are instead pseudo-memories implanted by therapists through techniques such as hypnosis. In response to these claims, the author presents two well-documented and corroborated cases of disassociated or delayed memories of child sexual abuse in patients with a diagnosis of disassociative identity disorder. The patients had absolutely no conscious memory of their child abuse experiences, and in both cases, the author obtained definite and clear-cut independent corroboration of the realities of the abuse. The amnesia was documented, and the memories were recovered in the course of the treatment. These are two examples taken from a list of 20 studies compiled by psychologist Lynn Crook. Do studies like this falsify the there's no such thing as recovered memories position? And if so, how are psychologists like Elizabeth Loftus unaware of them? The answer to those questions is no, and they're not, respectively. It's not true to say that all proponents of false memory believe that all memories recovered in therapy are false. Rather, they question the mechanism by which this occurs. In their 2006 paper, Who Needs Repression? Normal Memory Processes Can Explain Forgetting of Childhood Sexual Abuse, psychologists Susan Clancy and Richard McNally contended that the recovery of childhood sexual memories can be explained by normal forgetting and remembering, and does not require recourse to a special trauma mechanism. I'll play a clip off Dr. McNally explaining. Uh, at the time we embarked upon this project, uh, there were sort of two opposing views of this matter. One was that traumatic events, in virtue of the fact that uh, the stress hormones that are released at such times sort of make the memory highly memorable indeed, and often intrusive, as in the case of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and so if someone claimed to have completely forgotten something that was presumably a trauma, they must be mistaken. There must be a false memory. Uh, then the uh, other individuals who believe that the mind protects itself by banishing memories of trauma because they are so traumatic, sealing them away in such a way that they can only be unearthed with certain therapeutic techniques when the person was ready to do it, the so-called repressed memory of trauma. There seemed to be a third interpretation of recovered memories, one that is, has nothing to do with repression nor actually to do with trauma in the narrow sense of the word. We had individuals who reported having been sexually abused, molested typically, uh, you know, uh, fondled in some oral genital contact, but it never involved violence, never involved threats or terrors. It often involved somebody that they knew, a stepfather, grandfather. The kids were only seven years old at the time, but, and um, they didn't understand it. They had no concept for it. Uh, and then the perpetrator dies, uh, they move to a new neighborhood, they just forget about it. It was uncomfortable, it was anxiety provoked, you know, uh, but it was creepy and they knew it was wrong sometimes because the perpetrator would say, shh, don't tell anybody about this. This is how I show that I love you. And the kid's wondering, nobody does this, 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 is, not, this is weird. You know? But it's not the sort of thing as a brutal rape, the sort of terrifying trauma that provokes the stress hormones that would render such an experience vivid and intrusive for years later. And then we don't think about it for many years. And then they encounter some reminder. Uh, and boom, they say, oh my God, I, I remember my grandfather or uncle doing these sorts of things. 
that's what he was doing when I was sitting on his lap and he was touching me. So I'm, like, I'm a sexual abuse survivor. We're related. This is incest in the broad sense of the word. And would one version of this be what's referred to as the recovered memory syndrome? Well, I think they would, in fact, qualify for recovered memory. But here's the catch. At the time the event happened, it wasn't traumatic in the narrow sense yeah, right. of the word of provoking terror. And during the long period of time when the memory apparently never came to mind, we have no evidence that it was blocked or repressed because it was so traumatic. Indeed, it wasn't. And then when they encountered some reminder, they recall it like that. It's not as if it had to be you know, painstakingly sort of pried loose, uh, uh, you know, buried deep into the mind, nothing of that sort. Then, once they recover this memory, once they, they recall this and interpret it through the eyes of an adult for the first time, realizing that they were in fact sexually molested, that somebody was sexually exploiting them, somebody that they trusted. Mm -hmm. And now about a third of them were having PTSD symptoms, which in fact was a delayed onset PTSD in virtue of the fact that they um, now understand what had happened. And so here's the irony of this. Yes, they forgot it for a long period of time, but not because it was so traumatic. Rather, they forgot about it because it wasn't so traumatic. They didn't understand it, and they didn't encounter reminders until later in adulthood. And when they did, it came to mind without any difficulty, without any sort of inhibition or repression being relevant. So I think that some of the cases that have surfaced in this controversy over these years are actually like that. It's not a false memory, mm -hmm. and it's not a traumatic memory that was repressed because it was so traumatic. Indeed, it wasn't traumatic. But once the person recalls it, interprets it through the eyes of adult, now they're traumatized. And so when you see these people clinically, they're highly distressed. And so the inference is, ah, uh, finally the, the lid of repression was broken, but the reason why it was forgotten was because they were suffering from these stress symptoms. Doesn't seem to be the case. So there we have a way to account for the phenomenon of recovered memories without recourse to a mechanism of traumatically induced repression. Good old-fashioned forgetting is sufficient. It's worth noting, of course, that genuine abusers may well attempt to erroneously employ a false memory defense in court for recovered memories that clearly don't fit the bill. This is probably what we've seen in the high-profile cases of recent years. Informative as Susan Clancy and Richard McNally's work is, it of course doesn't demonstrate that traumatic repression does not also happen. So is there evidence for it? In his book Memory Warp, journalist Mark Pendergrass writes of going in search for documented cases of massive repression, in which years of abuse have been forgotten. He writes of contacting over 50 professional psychological associations, yet finding no corroborating cases of that nature. Every confirmed case he did find was consistent with the kind of normal forgetting Clancy and McNally describe. There remain some outstanding cases of memory recovery, which are clearly too extreme to be accounted for by normal forgetting. Political science professor Ross Cheat has composed an archive of over 110 recovered memory cases. I read through it, searching for the most egregious ones. I counted 13 corroborated counts of repressed memories of rape, which would be far too extreme to be forgotten. The problem is the nature of this corroboration. It consists of things like witness statements made in court cases potentially decades ago. Given the ambiguities inherent in this area, it's impossible to know what really went on. In investigating similar cases, 
Mark Pendergrast insists he never found one where the corroboration held up to scrutiny. Whilst I'm not in a position to entirely dismiss this phenomena, it does seem to me that Richard McNally is correct when he says there is no convincing evidence for the claim that victims repress and recover memories of traumatic events. Thank you for listening. I think that covers memory sufficiently to be able to return to the series looking at the writing of David Icke and the wide revolution of conspiracy culture. I'll also continue this series. I'd like to examine the concept of impossible memories, memories of being in the womb, of past lives, or alien abductions. Are these false, or do they force us to reconsider what memory, and ultimately consciousness, really is? I'll link to the various books and studies I've referenced in the info box, as well as details on how to support this show, and join the forum.